Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. We're going to be in the uh, book of uh, 1 Timothy here this morning. And um, if you're just joining with us, um, the first of every month, uh, the elders have been working through uh, the book of 1 Timothy, and this morning it uh, falls on me uh, to go through uh, verses 1 through 16 here this morning, and uh, just kind of get us caught back up to speed here, we'll be in uh, 1 Timothy chapter number 5. This is Paul. He's writing to Timothy, and Timothy is basically his protege in ministry. Paul sends Timothy back to uh, many of these churches that Paul planted and to get things structured and organized. You'll see that in many of the letters. He says, I'm sending Timothy to you when he comes. Make sure you receive him. Make sure he does this. And Timothy was basically sent to go and bring uh, structure to the churches He tells them certain things on how the church is supposed to function. He tells them how the church is supposed to find elders and deacons and the qualifications for those things. Um, And uh, as we saw last month, as uh, our uh, other elder, Alan, covered, uh, he talked about um, Timothy, uh, basically how he was to teach others to be a living example to those uh, whom he was instructing. And he was supposed to command them to really be an example um, in their speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. And so this uh, month, this, uh, today, we're going to be looking in primarily verses 1 through 16. And uh, basically, Paul's going to talk to Timothy and tell him really how to correct members within the, the congregation and also to care for members in the congregation. Okay, so these are all instructions of how the church is supposed to be functioning and how things are supposed to be uh, working out within the, the body of Christ there. And the primary overall theme, and I hope you'll see this uh, through verses uh, 1 through 16, is uh, a theme of family, how we are supposed to treat each other as family and how we're supposed to care for each other as family. And hopefully you'll see that as uh, we work our way through that. So this is what I'd like for you to take away with you this morning. Correct and care for each other as members of God's family. Correct and care for each other as members of God's family. So let's take note here, uh, first, primarily, number one, correct believers by treating them like family. Notice what Paul says here. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, a younger man as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. How should believers practice the ministry of correction? And believe it or not, all of us are called to do that. Uh, If you know Christ as your Savior... We are all called to be able to correct and help others within the body of Christ. Paul instructs Timothy how this is supposed to be done. Now, from what we gather, 
uh, is what was happening here, is what he addresses in 1 Timothy. Uh, there were false teachers that had come into the church. That's why Timothy was sent uh, to be able to bring some structure and some organization there in the church. Uh, these false teachers uh, were attacking the church. Some of them were even possibly elders. Uh, Paul reminds us about the elders in Ephesus about this in Acts 20, 29 through 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Some of the members had even left sound teaching and uh, sound doctrine, as we saw in 1 Timothy 1.19 and also 1 Timothy 4.1. They made, sh- they made a shipwreck of their faith. Some women were even seeking to usurp the leadership positions in the church, as we saw in 1 Timothy 2.9-15. And we'll see shortly that even some of the widows were gossiping and living impure lives, as we will see in 1 Timothy 5, 6 through 7, and also verses 11 through 13. So how were these believers to be corrected? Timothy, no doubt, probably had a very timid disposition about himself. Um, It wasn't natural for him to confront sin in the local church. That's why Paul even uh, commands him. He says, let no man despise your youth, right? Um, And it's probably really the same for us as well. None of us really like to deal with the idea of correcting an individual. Um, We would rather just not say anything uh, when others are in sin or walking contrary to God's word. However, Scripture commands us to practice this ministry of correction because it is part of mentoring people to helping them grow in their faith. This is why I believe uh, the church is so weak today. Uh, because we just allow people to go on living in the type of lifestyles that they're living in. Uh, There's never really a call for them to maturity and to say, stop acting that way, grow up, and you need to mature in your uh, faith walk with Jesus Christ. And so this is the whole part of correcting individuals and helping them grow uh, spiritually in their life with Christ. Uh, I believe that we are not doing our job of confronting sin helping our fellow brothers and sisters grow in Christ. Now, before I give you some helpful things about how to correct someone, I think it's necessary to understand what kind of correction Paul is not talking about, okay? Paul is not talking about making sure everyone agrees with you or your opinions on non-essentials, okay? Now, this is so important because many times in our lives, we all become very blinded to the fact that just because we do something a certain way or we were brought up a certain way, then therefore that means that I'm right and everybody else is wrong, okay? That's not the kind of correction Paul is talking about here. Truthfully, we all like things to be done our way, and if someone is not doing it our way or saying it the way that we think it should be said, we can fall into the trap of thinking I'm right and they're wrong. This is nitpicking about details that do not matter. We sometimes find ourselves arguing over preferences and words or semantics, right? Um, Paul warns about this in 2 Timothy 2.14 as he tells Timothy, command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless, he says, and they can ruin those who hear them. Paul addressed the church in Galatia with these words in Galatians 5.13-16. 
For you were called to, be, to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If we try to impose our opinions on others, it can lead to problems within the church. And that is not the kind of correction Paul is talking about here. He's talking about correcting believers who are straying off into sin or they're departing from the word of God. That's the correction Paul is talking about and the kind of correction that we should be doing. And if if we try to correct people with our opinions or what we like, what we don't like, so forth and so on, we may end up finding that we are the ones that will need to be corrected because we are bringing division within the body of Christ, okay? So what kind of correction is Paul talking about? And as I said, it's those that are straying off into sin. A ship that gets off course is in danger of being shipwrecked. Just like that, the ship, if our lives veer off course from the word of God, we're in danger of shipwreck. We're in danger of of running aground, right? And so Paul calls us and tells us we need to correct one another when we see our lives, we maybe see another brother or sister veering off from the word of God. So how are we to confront somebody? Number one, here they are. Never harshly address someone in the church. The word Paul uses here is rebuke. Do not rebuke an older man. Now, it's interesting. This word only appears in this instance and only in the New Testament. That's the only time you're going to find this word. It is a strong term that means a harsh, sharp, or violent rebuke. And so this prohibition to confrontation seems not just to older men, but I think believe that it also applies to younger men Older women and younger women as well. Do not rebuke somebody like this, right? So if you see somebody who is straying off course from the word of God, they're straying off, they're veering off course, you're not to come over there and rebuke them harshly, but rather you are to treat them differently. You're supposed to be treating them like family. And so, don't do it. Don't treat your fellow believers in Christ that way. Why should believers never harshly rebuke others? Well, no doubt the manner of the rebuke will push some away. We're reminded in Ephesians 4.15 to speak the truth in what? Love. Our manner of speaking is just as important as the words we say. Many scriptures that talk about correction also mention the need for gentleness. Now, here are just a couple Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. 2 Timothy 2.25, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So don't blast. Secondly, correct believers in an encouraging manner. Notice again what Paul says here. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. How do we correct others who are in sin, straying away from God's word in an encouraging way? Paul said we must encourage, or it can be translated also as appeal. This word comes from the word parakaleo, and it means to encourage. 
admonish, entreat, appeal, or even to strengthen. It has the idea of coming alongside to hold up one who is weak. The related word parakletos is the title of the Holy Spirit that we find in John 14, 16, John 14, 26, John 15, 26, and also John 16, 7. So the idea is if we are to encourage them, we must come alongside of them and strengthen them and help them, not just blasting forth and saying, you're wrong, right? We're supposed to encourage them and help them as you would a family member. We help them see the air and try to help them in any way we can to get back on course. This may mean you inviting them over to your house. This may say, hey, let's go grab lunch together. Hey, let's go out for breakfast. Or, hey, I'd really like to just talk with you just for a moment, right? You're coming along in an encouraging way to help them, strengthen them, to help them and edify them in that way. Correcting or giving counsel is the same as teaching, except it's done personally to help the individual see how Scripture applies to their situation. You may need to point out the gap between what he is saying and what he's doing. You may need to show him Scripture and ask, how does what you said or did fit with what God's Word says? And I will tell you often, when you point out what Scripture says and what they may be doing, the person may accuse you of being judgmental, Hard, harsh, not loving, but we are all called to help correct other believers that are straying off from the word of God. This is something that we have to be doing. This is all part of speaking the truth, but doing so in love. Thirdly, correct believers by relating to them with respect and love as family. Look again at the text. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as what? You would a father. Instead of a younger man, you encourage them as a brother. Instead of older women, you encourage them as a mother would. Or younger women as a sister. Olive Garden has a uh, pretty unique saying is they, for their uh, slogan. It says, when you're here, you're what? Family. Now, that's a quaint saying, but you know what? I don't really feel like family when, it, when the bill comes, Right? But Scripture tells us that we are to treat each other like family. A father, a mother, a brother, and a sister here. Timothy was pastoring really a multi-gender, multi-age, multi-ethnic church, which presented various inherent difficulties. Some pastors tend to neglect the older crowd and focus on the young, while others focus on the old and neglect the youth. And because the church is a family, we must minister to everybody and yet recognize distinctions among the family, especially that of age and of sex. And so when we correct, we must treat them as family. Paul says to treat the younger men as brothers and the younger women as sisters. Now, one might be thinking that Paul would say treat them as younger brothers or younger sisters, but he doesn't do that. The older members are not supposed to treat the young in the church with an air of superiority. I've been here for X Who are you to say, right? We're all supposed to treat each other as family, as mothers, as fathers, as brothers, 
and sisters. Nobody in here has a handle on, I've been a Christian longer than you have, so therefore I'm more spiritual than you are. It doesn't work that way. Okay? We're all growing and maturing in our faith with Jesus Christ, and we are to treat each other like family. Older members should treat and demonstrate brotherly or sisterly affection towards them. And this is very similar to Peter's words to the elders in 1 Peter 5.3 as he tells them that they should not lord over those entrusted to them. Perhaps you might be older in this fellowship and you see a younger man or a younger woman behaving in a certain way. If you desire to be effective in correcting them, you are going to have to humble yourself and treat them lovingly as a brother or sister would. Christ himself humbled himself and became a man to save humans that aged through deserving of respect must humble themselves and they correct and minister to the young in the church. Now, if you do this, you will be amazed at how much influence you can have upon those that might be younger than you. And you will find yourself being actually a help to them instead of actually pushing them away. Here's the fourth thing. Correct believers in purity. Notice again the text. Paul says we are to correct, but do so in all purity. What does that mean? Given the context here, Paul is talking about correcting others who are going off course. They're they're drifting off into sin. When we confront that person about their sin... There's a danger that we ourselves can fall into that same sin or temptation. Consider some of these other warnings from Scripture. Galatians 6.1, Brothers and sisters, if a person is discovered in some sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a person in the spirit of gentleness. Pay close attention to yourselves so that you are not tempted to. Jude 1, 22 through 23, and have mercy on those who waver, save others by snatching them out of the fire, have mercy on others coupled with the fear of God, hating even the clothes stained by the flesh. When ministering to someone caught in sin, it often exposes us to the same air. If we are listening, if we, if we are trying to help somebody that uh, may have strayed off into false teaching, we ourselves are being exposed to the same false teaching. If we're trying to help somebody that may be uh, caught up in some form of sexual sin, we ourselves are in danger of being exposed to the same sexual sin. And so that's why he says we must do so in purity. We must watch ourselves. Jude says that we must seek to save them with a disposition of mercy for the person. Hate for sin and fear that we could stumble ourselves. And so to minister to those caught in sin with a spirit of fear is wise, for we are all vulnerable of falling. 1 Corinthians 10.12 reminds us of this. So let the one who thinks he is standing be careful that he does not fall. And I hope in all of this you see that when we are correcting someone, we are also caring for that individual. We're supposed to be treating them as you would family as well. Now let's move on to something here that's a little bit more controversial here, okay? Care for widows. Paul is now going to instruct and say, this is how widows are supposed to be taken care of within the church. Care for actual widows. Now, he's going to tell them about how they should be taken care of 
and what stipulations must be met if the church is supposed to be taking is supposed to take care of them. Now, God's word is clear on the fact of taking care of widows. Um, I want you to consider some of these verses here. Psalm 68.5 says, He is a father to the fatherless and an advocate for widows. God rules from his holy palace. Isaiah 1.17, Learn to do what is right, promote justice, give the oppressed reason to celebrate, take up the cause for the orphan, defend the rights of the widow. Exodus 22, 22 through 24, you must not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict them in any way and they cry to me, I will surely hear their cry and my anger will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will be widows and your children will be fatherless. God's very clear on what he believes about the care for widows and caring for those uh, that might be orphans or do not have a father. Women during this time lost their husbands for a variety of reasons, such as dangers of travel, disease, war, and a host of other things. In those days, there was no government assistance, and widows were in a specially vulnerable class. Without their husbands, they often had to turn to begging or even prostitution, so that way they could make sure that they have ends meet. Therefore, the church gave great attention to this neglected class, And here in 1 Timothy 5, Paul instructs the church on how to care for them. Now, many of these principles do not just apply to widows, but they also apply to single moms, divorcees, trafficking victims, and anybody else in desperate need. Now, there are four types of widows in these verses here, okay? We see, number one, the widows indeed. This is found in verses 3 through 5 and also verses 9 through 10. If you have a NASB or NIV, uh, you might see the phrase, really in need. And they do not have, these widows do not have family members to care for them as the way that uh, Paul describes it in these verses. Then secondly, we see another class of widows, and these widows are with children and with grandchildren. This is verses 4 and verse number 16. Then you see a third class. These are younger widows who should remarry in verses 11 through 15. And then we finally see a last class of widows, and these are widows who live for pleasure rather than for the Lord. And those widows are found in verse number 6. So here's the question. Should the church care for every widow? Is every widow entitled to financial help from the church? What are the instructions to the church in how to care for widows? Well, Paul is going to give us the certain criteria that must be met in order for widows to actually be financially taken care of by the church. So here they are. Number one, only needy widows should be cared for by the church. Look at verses uh, five, uh, chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, and also 9 through 10. Paul writes, "'Honor widows who are truly widows.'" But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. And we look at verse 9 and 10. Let a widow be enrolled, enrolled in what, Paul? Enrolled in this financial help. If she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, 
and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints and cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. And so Paul lists the stipulations here for actual widows that could receive financial help from the church. And so here are the general requirements. Number one, she is a, wid- a woman who has been left alone. Either she has no children or grandchildren, or they have died or are so far away that they could not offer any type of help to her. This woman has fixed her hope on God, is what we saw in verse number five. She's a woman of prayer. Anna, the uh, godly old woman in the temple who held the baby Jesus, is a great example of this in Luke uh, 2, 36 to 38. Paul says that the church should honor these types of widows. This is not to imply that we may disrespect other widows. Paul means that the church should help these certain widows financially. What does that mean to honor? The word honor there, verse 3, has a double meaning. First, it has the idea of a price that is supposed to be paid or received. And from there, it came to refer to honor or esteem attached to something or someone due to their value. So the word can refer both to material support and or to esteem somebody. In 1 Timothy 5.17, in referencing about elders, the word has both uh, uh, meanings there. In 1 Timothy 6.1, it clearly refers to just esteeming an individual. In our text, however, in verse 3, it seems weighted towards material support. So Paul is saying here that the church should give material support or financial aid to widows who are truly widows. These widows that were receiving financial aid were to be actively devoted to the ministry of the church, and the church gave them financial help. And so if you have widows who are truly widows, in order for them to actually be supported by the church... There's certain requirements that must be met. And so therefore, the list is probably very, very short in order for that to happen. In verse 9 and 10, Paul elaborates on what really defines a needy widow. Here they are. They're to be 60 years old, at least 60 years old, verse number 9. Younger widows, as we'll see in a moment, uh, Paul advises them to remarry. They are to be the wife of one husband. Now, that literally is a one man woman, okay? Not running around and whoo, you know, okay? One man woman. She is to have a reputation for good works, verse number 10, including bringing up children. Now, this probably means that she has had children, she has raised them in the faith, but this could also mean that she was helping other children during this time. Orphans, there was a lot of orphans. There were children that were just left all by themselves. And they were in danger from, from wicked men who were made, tried to, to uh, take those children, bring them into slavery or uh, some other type of things, right? And so these women possibly even took these children into their own home and raised them and cared for them. Today this might look a little different, but could a widow still care for the unwanted children or even caring for other children that are already in the church? Of course she could. Paul continues to add to the list of requirements. She must have shown hospitality to strangers and have washed the saints' feet. That's verse number 10. 
This is really a sign of her humility in serving the church. She must have assisted those in distress, which could refer to everything from visiting the sick and helping them, to giving them counsel and comfort to the distraught. And he sums this list up with this requirement. She has devoted herself to every good work. The widows in the church who met these qualifications were recognized by the church as being enrolled or on the list. Right? These, are the, these are the women that we're going to take care of. And they were to serve in various capacities in the church. Now, Paul contrasts this with women, these widows, who were not living that way. Look what he says here, verse number 6. He says, widows who are self-indulgent, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. The word means to live in luxury, we see this phrase used in Ezekiel 16.49 where God condemns Sodom because she and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but did not help the poor and needy. And so Paul is referring to a widow who lives in luxury and has no concern for others. And he says that this woman is dead even while she is living. She's insensitive to the things of God. So what about a widow with children or grandchildren who are still living? Should the church take care of these widows? Well, let's see what Paul says here. Widows with families should be cared for by their family members. Look at uh, verse number four. Paul says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Look at verse number seven and eight. He says, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul plainly commands that a widow with children or grandchildren should be cared for by them. The parents have contributed immeasurably to their children and grandchildren's welfare, and now it is their turn. To make some return is what Paul says in verse number four. To their widowed mother or grandmother. This is pleasing or acceptable in the sight of God. In fact, Paul goes on so far to say that if a person does not provide for his own family, and he clearly includes elderly parents here, he says he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Take a look at that word provide there. This word literally means to think ahead or to take thought for. And it is a pretty good sense for a man to make sure he has in place provisions for his family. He's thinking ahead. Oh, mom's getting a little bit older now. You know, she's, she just can't get around like how she used to. I need to start thinking about what are we going to do, right? He's making provisions to take care of his family. A man who does not do this is at best disobeying God's command, but at worst they are not even true believers. Their profession of faith means nothing and therefore is not real. James 1.22 warns us of this type of living. He says, be sure you live out the message and do not merely listen to it and so deceive yourselves. Faith without works is what? Dead. So this is why we have to make sure that we are providing, taking care of those that are in our family that could be possibly widows. We don't leave that up to the church and allow the church to take on that burden. 
we ourselves take care of that. So to sum up, the principle is this. If the family can provide for older widows, they should do so. And if there is no family to provide, then such older widows may be supported by the church if they are godly women, devoted to serving Christ and meeting the qualifications that Paul outlines for us here in 1 Timothy. If they're living for pleasure, then the church has no responsibility for them. But what about younger widows? Well, let's wrap this up here. Instruct younger widows to marry and be devoted to their families. Notice what he says here. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. This next section, Paul gives instruction to Timothy on how to care for younger widows. The church has a duty not to support them. Younger widows might also include single mothers with children, and Paul is wise and practical here. He does not want the church to turn into a welfare agency, supporting those who are not serving or who should be carrying their own load. And if you're thinking, Mike, isn't this being a little contradictory with what God commanded in the Old Testament? Mike, shouldn't we care for those who have fallen on hard times or going through a difficult patch, especially women, right? And maybe even women that have children that don't have a father. The point Paul is making is that only true widows should receive ongoing financial material aid. However, this does not mean that the church couldn't provide a one-time financial gift, but not ongoing financial help. The church still could provide ongoing support through prayer and mentoring. Galatians 6.10 reminds us of this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. As a church body, we can and should help others if it's in our power to do so. However, we also must be wise with the funds that God has entrusted to us. Often the church is bombarded by requests for help. Sadly, these requests commonly come from those living in drunkenness, sexual immorality, financial irresponsibility, and sometimes even drug use. To support these people financially may actually harm them and further handicap them. Sometimes with Christians living in rebellion, their dire situation is a natural consequence of their sin and a form of the Lord's discipline. To help someone who is unrepentant might actually hinder them from truly repenting and turning to God. And so Paul commands Timothy here to use discrimination in who they support. And he says, look, only support those widows who are truly widows indeed. And here's the requirements for that. So here's these younger widows here. What are they supposed to do? Well, notice what he says here. Number one, younger widows should not be supported, but should marry and be devoted to their families. That's what he commands for them to do. Verses 11 and 12, take a look at these. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned Their former faith. Whoa, that's some interesting language there. What is he saying? What is he talking about? Now, these verses here, especially here in verse number 12, are not easy to interpret. What does he mean here? We have this phrase, abandon their former faith. What does this mean? Now, the NASB and the NIV 
have some different ways that they talk about this. And uh, here's the NIV. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. So he says they've broken their first pledge. The NASB says about the same thing. So what is this abandoning their former faith or breaking their first pledge? Well, let me give you different ways that this is interpreted, okay? Number one, it could mean that the widows on the list made a vow to remain single, to focus on serving the Lord, and that young, and that young widows would be tempted to break their vow to God. Secondly, it could mean that these young widows would desire to marry so badly that they would compromise their faith by marrying an unbeliever. And this would also fit with abandoning their former faith. To marry someone outside of their faith is really to cast off their first faith, our decision to follow and obey Christ, is what 1 Corinthians 7.39 says. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, only someone in the Lord. And so the consistent testimony of Scripture is that believers must marry believers. Thirdly, this could also be interpreted this way, and this is where I would agree and how I believe that it should be interpreted, but that's just my opinion, so it really doesn't matter. Um, These younger widows were falling into the heirs of the false teachers, and the terms that we see here used to describe these women in uh, verse number 13 parallel those that we find in the false teachers in uh, verses 6 and 7, also in uh, 4, 7, uh, chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, and also chapter 6, verse number 20. And so they were actually turning away from their faith in Christ. Not that they're losing their salvation, but they're running after false teaching and also false doctrine. And so they're abandoning the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. And so these women were marrying on the basis of sensual desires, not marrying in the Lord. And so Paul instructs that they should not be supported, but rather get remarried and have their families support them. And you see the the result of them doing this, he says, uh, because they abandoned their former faith, what ends up happening is he says their life consists of Uh, Verse 13, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. And uh, verse 15, he says, uh, for some have already strayed after Satan. So he says the church has no responsibility to support such widows. So let's wrap this up with the widows found in verse number 16 here. Notice what he says here. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. These widows have children or grandchildren. Should the church care for them? Well, here's Paul's instruction. Unmarried women in the church with dependent widows should support them, not the church. Now, probably Paul is uh, probably adding this as an afterthought and answering the question that might arise. But what if there's uh, no man as the head of the household? You know, should the church then support the widows in that family? Paul says that a believing woman should do that if she has uh, the capability of doing that. So don't put the financial burden on the church. Uh, So if there are truly, truly, truly widows within this body of believers... 
and you meet the qualifications, yes, we as a church really would desire to support you and to help you, but uh, not just, you know, I lost my husband and, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. It's not the church's uh, responsibility. But that does not mean that we still cannot care for all widows and to help them uh, whenever there's a need there, okay? So those are the instructions that Paul has there, all right? And remember, I didn't write it, God did. So if you have a problem with it, take it up with God, okay? All right, let's pray. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.